Now, before I forget, Fiona, would you like a cup of tea? I'd love one. Thank you, Vicar. Certainly. <laughs> um, what a lovely place you've got here. <laughs> it almost looks familiar. Do you know it at all? Have you I been do. here before? I've been here many times. Would you like some milk? Um, yes, please. Thank you no. very much. This Thank is a little bit like washing your dirty linen in public, isn't it? <laughs> Having your tea poured. Lovely. Right. That's all right. Do help yourself to a biscuit. Goodness. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is, thinking about it, nearly 30 years since Fiona first came. <laughs> I think you're mixing me up with my very elder sister. Oh, of course. <laughs> Phil Philippa Shaw. Yeah. When she came to the National for the first time to play Julia in Peter Wood's production of The Rivals with mm. Geraldine McEwen, Michael Horden, Edward Petherbridge, Tim Curry, and despite that formidable company, Fiona more than made an impression on all those who saw it. And since then, she's been coming back to the National sort of every second two or three years. And one thinks of the extraordinary range of parts. She's played everything from Mother Courage to Miss Jean Brodie, from Richard II to Lady Gay Spanker in London Assurance a year or two ago, which she and Simon Russell made one of the great comedy pairings I must say, I've ever seen. And now I'm glad to say she's back on the set, indeed, playing Galactica in Howard Barker's, I would say it's his most accessible play, probably he doesn't like the word accessible very much, he strongly disapproves of that, but I think so anyway. Scenes from an execution, which is turning into be an enormous hit, but yes. of course she's played head on stage and Electra and Medea, but probably when she goes around the supermarket, the part that people will recognize her for, of course, is Aunt Petunia in the Harry Potter films. <laughs> But this has been very much a characteristic of Fiona's Renaissance career. She goes from one project to the other with kind of amazing, reckless abandon. And you, you enjoy that. That's part of, for your money, it's part of being a performer, is to do all these extraordinary things and have that variety and diversity, Fiona. Yes, and in the last few years, I've started directing operas as well. Indeed. Because I found that um, much as I do love acting, and I really love it, in fact... It's like a Gambon who says, be careful, you mustn't love it too much. <laughs> um, is that uh, it's very tiring. And uh, I've enjoyed, you know, like a sort of mechanic with a car, I like to be tinkering at a car somewhere. So I, I, I started directing the opera and I find it, it just takes the pressure off. I can mm. be in the theatre and not... <laughs> putting on an opera is not easy at all. I was all. going it's, to say, it's not it's exactly like a rescue. jumping out of a <laughs> helicopter without a parachute. That's roughly what it's like, but it's quick and it goes, ah! <laughs> think, ah. Uh, but it's a, it's a change, mm -hmm. yeah. But have they been quite welcoming, the kind of opera world to you? They're very, very welcoming. And I think, you know, I do genuinely think that there's a sort of mutual benefit. They get a chance to act better because I see the possibilities of scenes more and I get to learn so much from them. And mm. so many uh, singers are phenomenally good actors. So that's been great fun. What they find very hard is when I want the performance to come from who they are themselves as people because opera singers are taught absolutely to be whatever you want me to be and they they are like sort of you know they're like sumo wrestlers and that they've been peculiarly trained haven't they and they're oh! and they actually you want them to somehow personalize even bel canto and it's so interesting that maria callas was so popular even when her voice went wrong went off, it's because she was in the middle of those pieces of singing. Not a thing called a voice. She was. Her, her soul was in it. Mm. And so I have great fun with the uh, singers, trying to get them to take responsibility for the choices that happen. They go insane about it. They say, just tell me what to do. 
I say, no, you tell me what you want to do and I'll help you do it. Oh, they hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but we've paid for them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, you, do you have a sort of ongoing relationship with the National? Because it does seem every two or three years you will come and do, do a show here. Is it as formal as that, or how does it actually work? If we were in another European country, mm. I'd be on a pension, wouldn't I? Something <laughs> sad, you know. Um, no, it's just, it's just when something occurs mm -hmm. uh, that they can't get anyone else for. <laughs> they, they, they say, all right. <laughs> Ring the red button. <laughs> and, um, no, I mean, I, I've been incredibly lucky, of course. I've done what I've loved about working at the National, apart from the lovely arrivals that you mentioned that was my debut, really, is, is that the National, unlike many institutions, which is a horrible word, um, under Richard Eyre was fantastically good at things like experiment. And Richard II was a huge experiment that should have been done in some you know, strange backwater of a theatre. But to do an experiment right in the middle of the National Theatre was a fantastic honour and pleasure to have all the power of the National behind it. And I, I, I'm very proud that we were allowed to do that at that time. And um, uh, subsequently, also in a funny way, Miss Jean Brodie was also an experiment mm -hmm. because we had choirs rewriting, running between Italy and, and um, lovely Muriel Spark, God rest her soul, and also Jay Preston Allen, who was always very tough. Mm. I, I, she said one day, would you like a cup of tea? I said, well, whatever, are you having one? She said, I don't give a damn. Just have a <laughs> um, so, you know, I met a lot of extraordinary people, in, not just in doing plays, but in the area around plays. Yeah. And two years ago or three years ago, when we did um, Mother Courage uh, in, this, in the Olivier, um, I had just been to LA and I had befriended the then very aging Gore Vidal. And I asked him, would he do the voiceovers for... The Mother Courage, which he did, and then he promptly turned up on the first night, which he wasn't invited to, and then promptly turned up on the stage, which he wasn't invited to, <laughs> and took over the curtain call. Um, so, you know, I have marvellous things that have occurred yes, here. Yes, yes. So how did you first hear about scenes from an execution? Was that something the National brought to you, or you...? I, I mean, I'm kicking myself. I, I'm not, because the right place happened at the right time, but I was uh, taken out to dinner uh, by lovely Tom Cairns, Actually, it was sent to me. It was sent to me. I was in Los Angeles doing a television series called True Blood, and I was sent it. And I was immediately struck by it. Now, I've often gone through agonies uh, trying to find plays. I can never find them. I don't know why I never thought of looking at this one. Uh, like a lot of people, I think I probably presupposed it was too didactic or something. But it's, I had seen it with Glenda Jackson 25 years mm. ago at the Almeida, and all I remember is an easel and Glenda Jackson being very cross. And I remember she gave up acting shortly afterwards, and I'm, I'm hoping this won't have the same effect on me, but it, 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 um, she was coming to the end of her tether with acting. Mm -hmm. But she did play it very well. I remember being impressed by it, but it, it, it uh, certainly didn't seem to have the... It, it, I'm not saying it didn't have anything. We enjoyed it at the time, but when I re-look at it, it looks like a completely different play mm. now, which means that, of course, plays, if they are good like pieces of furniture or pieces of art, they literally change with us, or we change them, which, whichever happens. You know, somehow Islam or Muslim threat seems much bigger in the schema of things now, meant, I mean, I don't mean politically, I mean imaginatively, um, than it was 25 years ago. Mm. But anyway, here it is, this Venice defending itself against the Turks, and um, seems to make more sense. I mean, would you, is it fair to say that one of the themes of the play um, is the you know the artist's perennial struggle with having to make a living and having to sometimes to make compromises either for a sort of private patron or in the case of this uh, play the state. 
Would you yes, say that's I mean, one it, of the it ideas? Yes, I mean, it is about that. I mean, it's about what it's about, which is that, you know, Venice is a neurotic state, and I suspect he's saying England mm. is quite a neurotic state. In Venice, you know, you had to be a member of 120 families who were locked in a book, and otherwise you couldn't get a job. And if you were a member of those families, they formed a committee, who formed a committee, who formed a committee, who, who elected the doge. So no one's hands were responsibly on anything. Mm. If that doesn't remind you of an institution not a million miles away, <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, the, the, the sort of labyrinthine possibilities mm. of what seems to be called it was called a republic. In fact, it was run by a tiny group. We're called a democracy, and we're run by a tiny group. Right. And I think he do, he, he, he's very brave in which he sets up the premises mm -hmm. of these things. But I'm not particularly a political person. I think in the world, in most plays, you find the viewer finds themselves in it. And I hope the audience find themselves. Each of us is an artist, maybe, or each of us is a doge. And maybe you spend the evening working out which one you are. Mm. And uh, I had marvellous Fiuk McAneil, who runs the Abbey Theatre, who's now a senator in Ireland. Uh, he looks like an Irish chieftain with long hair. He came the other day. He said, very interesting play, very interesting play, very challenging for us. So I thought, because you're a doge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the world is divided into doges and artists, but I think we are all artists. In our, we're all struggling against something, whether it's your income tax or... <clears throat> or your, you know, or your virgin internet or whatever. I mean, there's always somebody mastering you and you're always trying to be free in our lives within it. And I think it's really about that. What uh, struck me about it was I'd forgotten this kind of scale of these public works. You know, it is a kind of, you've got a ladder, scaffolding, you know, you've, it's not exactly, you're not daubing in watercolours in a sort of tiny little uh, f uh, frame. It's an enormous... Uh, piece of work that your chap that these artists undertook to make those sorts of paintings. Yes, I think um, very often the very detail of <coughs> the of the uh, scale of people's endeavours with their shorter lives than we have is quite breathtaking. Everything's so instantaneous now that they had to. I mean, you just think of you know, Michelangelo and his team. I suspect of people lying on their backs for months mm. doing the Sistine Chapel. Mm. But yeah, it's this. You know, even acting is quite hard, doing it eight times, <laughs> 14 times on the trot or something. You, it's about a lot of art or anything that you're good at is about consistently applying yourself to it. That seems to be really what most people mm -hmm. discover about most things. How much did you know about the Italian Renaissance? I mean, are you visually uh, <coughs> experienced, would you say? Do you go to exhibitions? Do you recognise your old masters? You know, is, do you have a kind of visual sense as much as a poetic sense? Um, I'm very interested in painting. Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, I've been to Venice first when I was about 21 with my mother with the Irish Georgian Society, which was a fantastic trip, because a man called Desmond Guinness, who ran the Irish Georgian Society, was a f related to all these duchesses on the uh, Grand Canal. So this group of us, 20 of us, were invited to all these cocktail parties. And all I remember is how all the duchesses had arthritis from living on that canal. So they were all like, come in. You know? <laughs> um, but is it Lord Byron who said about Venice, really the, the star of Venice is is the city, you know, mm. there's wonderful Tintorettos and Canalettos or Canalonis as people call them. Um, there are brilliant paintings. So I wouldn't say I'm particularly au fait with the Renaissance in that sense. Mm. And I knew nothing about Artemisia Gentileschi, who, on whom roughly this play is yes, sort of suggested by rather than based. <clears throat> um, so I wouldn't say I'm a, a, an art historian, but I'm very into art, yeah. But uh, Galactica's gender is perhaps not that important, or would you disagree? Because in other plays of Barker's, the, the names he gives his characters 
don't indicate whether they're male or female at all. There's a kind of, I don't know whether it's a sort of uh, hermaphrodite he's aiming for, but, I mean, how, how important, how significant is it that his central character in this play is female? Well, I think this is very interesting, you know, because I've lived my life as a female, and you're always looking for parts that somehow allow you to pitch your experience in life against the universe rather than just against a family drama or, mm -hmm. or a husband who fights on your behalf or something. You're, you're just trying to, to be... And the Greeks were terribly good at making females the protagonists, and they were quite honest about it. They believed the female was the lowest form of human life and therefore the person most likely to be... Uh, a victim of the onslaughts mm. of the gods, so Medea or Electra or any of those, uh, really had a terrible time because they were, in a way, incapable of fighting back. And I think Barker, who often makes his protagonist female, may be doing something similar, which is, if this was a male painter taking on the doge, it would lead to a punch-up in some way. Men will go to violence. Where a woman, in general, just can't go to violence, they have to go through the victimization, which is a dangerous thing to say. I don't mean victim in the sense of victim, but they have to come through in a, in a, in a way that's more discursive, I suppose. So women make good protagonists of potential tragedies. This is a potential tragedy. I don't think it is really a tragedy, mm -hmm. but it's a potential. It's actually very funny, of course. That's the other thing. It's very funny. I mean, did Parker attend rehearsals? Did he have a chance to discuss things with him? But he or? was here last night. Some of you may have been here, and he speaks. I mean, he speaks phenomenally, you know, and... He swallowed a dictionary. I mean, he's just amazing. Um, and he really has an overview of the culture he's in. So he didn't attend uh, rehearsals. I think, to be honest, that wasn't a bad thing mm -hmm. because it's not immediately written. It was written 25 years ago. And in a way, the generation who are producing the play now, I mean, he and I are not that far apart, but is not the, you know... We're taking his play of then and making it now. We're not trying to make it then. And he came to a run-through at the end, and he said very little. He said a wonderful thing to me, actually. I asked him about the end of the play. I hope I'm not giving anything away here to anybody who hasn't seen it. Have you all seen it? No. no. <laughs> Doesn't matter. There's a lot happens. And then I say, does she want to be understood? Uh, she says she doesn't want to be understood. It's very funny at the end, but she's spent the whole evening... She says uh, she doesn't want to be understood. It's really terribly understood. I said, does she want to be understood or doesn't she want to be understood? He said, like most of us, she wants everything. <laughs> and in that way, he's very, very honest about mm. the fact that Barker himself, who's seen often or is portrayed as a man on the outside, never at the National Theatre. I mean, is he delighted to be at the National Theatre? I think not. He feels he's been brought in out of the cold. But he somewhere also must be delighted he's at the National Theatre. And I think that ambivalence is where... A lot of people live. <laughs> mm. Well, yes, well, he, he was quoted as saying, well, I, he was delighted that you were doing uh, scenes from oh, But what about the other plays? That he, yes, he <laughs> said, this choose? isn't a very good play. I wish you were doing another play. And, you know, he said, I, I, I turned off the... the, the uh, I was up in my dressing room having a lie-down last night, and I, I turned off the uh, tannoy, which was up there, when he said, when I first wrote this play, I was quite sympathetic to the main character, and then I went really off her. I thought, whoa! <laughs> Because, uh, actually, I think I'm very sympathetic in it. I'm very delighted by the person I play. I think she's fantastic. I really enjoy her contradictions. But so sometimes one can have too much information from the writer, yes. perhaps. Yes. Yes, quite. Now, you mentioned... I must just bring up this question of uh, true blood. Mm. Uh, you mentioned that uh, series. I didn't actually see it, but I know... I read somewhere, I think you were... I, 
an interview that you were giving, you were sort of sitting at home and the phone went and it was the people from True Blood who'd somehow or other tracked you down. They hadn't gone normal, gone through your agent and made you an offer or discussed it with you. Did I was in the dressing room mm. in the Abbey in Dublin doing John Gabriel Bortman with Alan Rickman and Lindsay Duncan and I was literally getting ready to go on and the mm -hmm. phone rang and they said, hello, this is True Blood. I didn't know who True Blood was. I said, <laughs> what's that? They said, one of the most popular TV series in the whole of America ever. <laughs> Anyway, they said, would I like to be in it? It was very, very nice. That's the kind of offer you like, actually. Mm. It's wonderful. Because it, it whirlwinds you away from what you're doing, which was you know, John Gabriel Bortman in the Abbey and then in BAM. And when everybody else at the end of BAM, when we did a run of, of John Gabriel Bortman, they all went home to England. I went on a plane and went to California for the next six months, yes. and that was lovely. Mm. Now, it's, it's part of that apparently inexhaustible thirst rather than hunger for vampire and... Mm. Uh, themes and this, but this is set in Louisiana. It's a kind of deep south Gothic, as I. It's absolutely brilliant, it. actually. True Blood. I mean, it is mm. about vampires, but fundamentally, it's about outsiders. That's really mm. what the vampires represent, and it's about the fact that vampires, uh, who suddenly can drink a new alternative blood, should be allowed back in society and should be allowed the vote. Um, <laughs> and there's a fantastic character who's always on the television on behalf of the vampires, saying they should have equal rights. So it's a brilliant way of airing. Mm. Um, Outsiders. They, of course, are outsiders, incredibly sexy. They are a few drawbacks, obviously, to falling in love with a vampire, <laughs> but, um, and certainly to being turned into one. Um, but uh, apart from that, they, they're pretty sexy guys. That's, uh, I was against the vampires. I played a witch who tried to take them on. But alas, without success, do I understand? Well, that's the point of the series. <laughs> At the end, I said, I don't see why she should die. You know, she really should. They said, it's a vampire series. <laughs> Now, this was cre created by Alan Ball, who, of course, wrote American Beauty yes. and also created Six Feet Under, amongst other yeah. things. So he's, a bit, he's a classy, a classy chap. He is. What and made them think of you? Did you ever ask I them? think Medea made them think right. of me, though, in fact, it wasn't at all like Medea, but I think uh, people had seen Medea in New York and thought, well, if you're looking for a witch, why don't we get one? <laughs> uh, I think, honestly, I mean, I, I'd like mm. to think it was rather grander reasons, but I think it probably was that. And... I think they do try and cast outside the box, which is mm. exciting, and it's HBO. But I really enjoyed being with them, the discipline of them. And they are amazing Americans. You know, sometimes Alan Ball would call me for a meeting because I played a witch who was just a sort of really working-class lady from Louisiana, already hard, uh, just who ran a little wicker shop, already hard, who found herself being infused by a 17th-century witch from Spain, no, Catalan witch, who was played, who, who had an alter ego, who was played by Miss Columbia, who was absolutely stunningly beautiful. And I had this sad feeling that in order to keep the viewers happy, they had to have me and Miss Columbia <laughs> to keep the view. Uh, Miss Columbia would every now and then, due to the magic of television, be swallowed into me, and then, and then I'd have to speak with a mixture of <laughs> Louisiana and Columbia. So I would have to go to Alan said, I think you better come to my office to test your accent. <laughs> so I went into the studio, which is on Santa Monica Boulevard, drove in, meeting at 10 to 10 in the morning. It was my meeting time. And I knocked on the door of his office. I was brought in to his office. You're, off, you're offered water. You know, you water. And you sit down. And Alan said, right, do the accent. So I did my accent that was half Colombian, half, you know, trying not to be Irish, trying not to be English, and trying not to be, just trying to be a Louisiana. And he had a pug dog that sat on the sofa, and the pug dog began to go. <laughs> <laughs> he said, 
I don't know what I think, but the dog likes it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so at one minute to ten, I finished the meeting and I went home again. I mean, that's, <laughs> they're very on the... There's not too much... Um, you know, Americans are amazing. They love nouns, don't they? They love sort of things like pizza, mm -hmm. coffee. They don't hang about doing anything, you know, money, job, <laughs> car. They just get on with it. And, and they, they, they don't hang around. So you don't get many filigree, you know, there's not a lot of that. Yes, beating about the bush no. and things like that. No. But presumably a lot of, whether all the, like Miss Columbia, were all the cars, you know, amazingly beautiful and handsome oh, and young. Oh, but they're all beyond. They're all about age five and they're gorgeous. You know. <laughs> and they'd all call me Miss Shaw all the time. I'd just stop. <laughs> Awful. Some of them I'd given mm. a talk to or a lecture at at Juilliard, mm -hmm. you know, about 150 mm. years ago. Years they were ago. going, oh, my God, we remember when we were students. They could stop remembering when you were students. <laughs> <laughs> so you were the grand old lady of I'm the company so. then. <laughs> but tell me about your relationship with Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, you are kind of called back from time to time to do various things, yeah. which is nice. That Not a lot be. since, I no. have said. Um, you know, they'd say, like, give that woman an Emmy. And then you're in <laughs> silence for the next five years. You know, they, have a, they have a way of doing that. And my relationship with Los Angeles is um, a lucky one in many ways. Uh, it isn't in one way. I was very naive. There was a moment when I might have become a film star. Hard to believe, I know. But I had done, in 1988, I did three plays at the ROC, but I also did My Left Foot and a film called Mountains of the Moon that Bob Raverson directed. And I was really shocked to stardom for a second. And at that moment, I was asked to do The Taming of the Shrew at the Barbican. I said, all right. <laughs> so while we were doing The Taming of the Shrew, I was filming uh, Bob Ravis' film. In fact, I'd signed for The, for the, for the Taming of the Shrew. So they said, can we get you out of that? Can we buy the theatre out? I said, you could buy the theatre out, but it might be expensive. They said, oh, well, uh, can we just get you out? I, I said, no, they'd sue. We don't like suing. So at night, I would, uh, after The Taming of the Shrew, I would get into a limousine and drive up to Liverpool and film for a bit with Bob Raveson. And then I was given a private plane, and I used to fly back with the pilot in the afternoon. And I was the air hostess, and I'd say, well, we have our coffee now, pilot. And I'd take out our flask, and I'd pour it. And we'd just come down to London. I'd do the tame of the shrew, get into a car, go up to... I mean, it was amazing. But I think something about America wisely picked up that really I wasn't for it. Mm -hmm. So I'm amazed that I've had other chances since with things like Three Men and a Lady and yeah. because they, they need you to like them. And so I've had a very checkered relationship mm -hmm. with it. But it's been much changed by last year, a lovely friend of mine called Taylor Thompson, who has a house in Bel Air, has a guest house in her garden. And so I lived in Bel Air while I was doing mm -hmm. the television series. And I have to say, that has changed my view of the city remarkably. Mm -hmm. In what way? Well, I found, initially, I was a bit overwhelmed by having a butler and four maids. And then I began <laughs> to get really used to it. <laughs> and coming back to my one-bedroom flat in Primrose Hill, mm -hmm. I, I did feel that maybe I had been missing out. <laughs> yes. So you can't find a butler there. Well, I'm always available for you, for good, the usual, usual thing. Now, you mentioned that production of John Gabriel Bortman, which you did in Dublin and yeah. in New York, but was there never any chance of it coming to London? Because I'd love to have seen you yeah. and Lindsay Duncan and Alan Rickman and a mm. sort of liaison dangereuse reunion, yes. in a way. Well, I don't know. It's a dark play. I'm sure mm. some of you saw it here in a fantastic production with uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Eileen Atkins and mm -hmm. Paul Scofield, but 
I must say, we tried our best with it, but I think it's a very dark play. I, I was very glad to shed it, actually, I have to say. Mm -hmm. I rarely feel that about a play, but I really... I found it like a bad spell, that play. Mm -hmm. mm. And do some... Are there other plays that have that same effect on Actually, Medea is a bad spell because it makes you feel depressed doing it. You're mm -hmm. excited doing it and mm -hmm. you feel awful afterwards. It's like a strange hangover when I did Medea. And I met some of the cast of Medea a year later. I remember one of them saying, I'm not over it yet. Mm. It's such a terrible thing. I mean, it's such a wonderful play. Yeah. The amount of uh, collusion by the audience with what goes on on the stage, the excitement that the audience feel. People used to faint and, uh, you know, one man had a heart attack. Mm. I wouldn't wish that on any audience member. But, I mean, it was a very exciting event to do. And then you'd feel terrible. Mm. So I think it's Euripides somehow like a strange... He got, he got right down to some black part of our mm. souls, mm. names it, we enacted it, but you don't feel good at mm. the end of it. It's quite an, I'm sitting at Rachel Sterling next week. You know, she's done a sort of up... Well, she hasn't, but Mike... Uh, 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 Mike, <coughs> who, has, uh, you know, who wrote 13 and uh, Earthquakes in London, he has done a kind of update of uh, Medea to a sort of, you know commuter, young mm. married sort of place near, in Berkshire somewhere, and so it's a kind of modern take on it. So I'm fascinated to see how that works in comparison yes, with your Yes, it was very interesting to, re to rehearse it, actually, because we did a lot of research, of course, and like very great plays, they are gender-free. Medea is often a man in our mm -hmm. society, often. It's to do with people feeling cornered, mm -hmm. and they, they, they choose oblivion. How do you think the industry's changed for women since you started? Well, it's funny to say industry. What you really mean probably is the, is the whole shebang of film and television. And I don't know. I don't do very much television. I, I really very rarely get asked to do television. I did a few things like Gormenghast or anything odd. I've done marvellous, wonderful, odd things that I've been asked to do. So I don't know what the demographic of it is in relation to... I fear it hasn't changed enough. But we live in a culture where the male protagonist is seen as the sort of um, organizing principle of how we learn lessons, which is what theatre and films teach us. What happens to the hero as he, and it's mainly he, comes through something to bring us to some resolution? And as long as that is the case, roughly the demographic is, I think it's 30 to 1, 30 male parts to one female part. So, you know, it is quite hard for women still. I think it really is to have a whole career. You see, um, you know, in a class at RADA, there's no doubt that if Ray Fiennes is in the class, he's going to have a much easier time than Imogen Stubbs. It doesn't... So that is the truth of it. I mean, that just is the way it is. So it may have improved. But in the theatre, um, I think what's very nice about this particular theatre is I don't think there's any policy on it. I think it's just as things occur. There's certainly no exclusion of women. And I have to say, I have had the most huge privilege, which is to be allowed, as I say, to play these peculiar parts um, against, which are neither sociable nor, you know, profitable, probably for them. Um, so I have never felt any drawback by being a woman, I have to say. Yeah, talking of Philidor Lloyd, she, of course, is directing an all-female Julius Caesar at the Donmar Warehouse. What do you yes. make of that? Presumably you're going to see it and... I can't wait to see it. Fact, <laughs> I, I said to her, I, I said, mm. I'm so interested to see it, I want to see rehearsal. She said, well, you could wear, you could come to rehearsal if you wore a yashmak, but if anyone saw it was you, they, they wouldn't do it. So mm. I, I said, she's going to secretly film the rehearsals, and I'm going to try and see that. Oh, I see. <laughs> I, I was very struck looking again at your credits, how, I know you've directed Widower's Houses, but 
You've never felt inclined to play any of the Shavian, you know, your namesakes, characters. Because I would have thought you'd have been Major absolutely... Major Barbara. Major Barbara. Um, well... No one's know. ever asked you. You don't, you don't feel... <coughs> the Rhine. It's fine, Stice, mildly on All of that. I think I missed my moment there, maybe. M yes. Yes. No, I haven't. I think when we were at RADA, Hugh Cropwell, who ran RADA, was very against Shaw. He said he was didactic and awful, but actually, uh, and the plays were about ideas, and in the end, mm. plays are about people. And I think that's true, that the poetry of the theatre, really, is about the fact that the character knows one truth about themselves, but you know more about them. Uh, they are about people, the way in which two people interact changes both of them. That is the joy of the theatre, the, as, as in a conversation. Something shifts in the evening, you know. If you knew the outcome of dinner with a friend, you probably wouldn't bother going. It's, it's somehow about finding how you will shift each other's thinking and play. Mm. And I think Shaw just comes on and says, here's the character, right. this is what they say. But actually, I have to say I'm revising that on this play, mm. where the characters often speak on behalf of a subject, and it's still thrilling. Yes, because I mean, I asked one of your quotes I saw, you, you deny you're an intellectual, you say, I'm loquacious, rather as if we can't both be an intellectual and be loquacious. In fact, a lot of intellectuals I've come across are very loquacious. But you are you know, highly articulate and love ideas and love language, and that's why I feel that you, know, you and your namesake, had you only, if you'd met. met, maybe in the afterlife, who knows? Who knows? We'd have had shared wonderful conversations together. Well, we will. Together. I'm sure we will. <clears throat> what about Wilde? Because... Isn't it about time you were giving your Lady Bracknell? <laughs> the whole afternoon has been just a mixed pleasure so far. With you. I, um, I, I suppose it is nearly yes. time for my Lady Bracknell. <laughs> I think and so. And I'll be working up to it soon, I've no doubt. <laughs> Lady Bracknell, she's fantastic. I, I, do you want to hear a story about Lady yes, Bracknell? Yes, please. Well, I did a film called The Last September, directed by my great friend Deborah Warner, and Maggie Smith played the main character in it, the lady thing. In, in, uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic book, the last September. And we all lived in a house in Ireland, a country house, and we were filming in another one. So there was Jane Birkin, who had done um, Death on the Nile with, with, with Maggie. So I was riveted. Every night we'd go home from filming, and Maggie and Jane would discuss Death on the Nile and all the people that Peter used to know, and that whole world of that. Anyway, one night we were sitting by the fire, and Maggie said... And at the time, I was doing the prime of Miss Jean Brodie here, which I was terrified to tell her. I couldn't tell her I was doing it. <laughs> and I just would commute. I'd turn up and do a few days filming, and I'd say, I'm going back to London, I'll see you all next week, bye, and I'd go back to London. And Maggie Smith said one night, you know, it was just impossible playing Lady Bracknell, impossible, because I had Edith's you know, voice in my head all the time, and I'd get to the handbag, and I just, I just couldn't say the line. And then she said, Fiona, you've gone very quiet. <laughs> Creme de la creme. Creme de la creme. So, so we, nothing escapes. No, nothing escapes me, Dame Maggie. No. We can't. Uh, I mean, how Irish do you feel? I mean, how important is being Irish to you and going to Ireland and working <clears throat> in Ireland? It doesn't feel very important. And that might be strange because many of you may hear my accent as being very Irish, but I don't experience it as that, you see. It isn't very important. It is, because, of course, Bernard Shaw said a wonderful thing about that. He said, I'm 94 years of age. He said, I've spent 74 years in this country 
But the first 20 I spent in Ireland, and so I will never be an Englishman. <laughs> I think the first 20 years of your life is somehow so beyond formative. There's nothing you can do about it. But I, my adult life has been spent in England, mm. and I'm very happy that it is. But, I mean, do you feel that? Of course, obviously, memorably, you've played in Happy Days and other Beckett works. I mean, do you feel a particular affinity with him because of your shared eyes? No, I, I feel the biggest influence on my work, and I, I'm embarrassed to say it, is really my very eccentric mother. And, mm. you know, most plays I do, my brother goes and goes, oh, there's mum again. <laughs> so somewhere, my mother's drama, my mother's mm. full of drama at home in her own life, absolute star of the family, and... Um, full of grandeur, my mother. She says things like, in the midst of life, we are in death. Pass the marmalade. <laughs> she, she's just marvellous. And um, she came, actually, the play last week. Mm -hmm. She sat in the middle there and she said, it's a I enjoyed seeing it very much. She didn't hear one word of it. So she's just got lost in hearing. Um, but she, uh, in a way, I think, the influence, my mother... When I played Hedda Gabler, my mother was always moving the furniture in our house. And when I played Hedda Gabler, I kept moving the furniture as someone who couldn't settle. I think that was my mother. Mm. Um, when I played, uh, um, maybe not Richard II, <laughs> but uh, Miss Jean Brodie, this sort of obsessional, sort of right-wing um, intellectualism was my mother. Mm. And so I, I do think she appears in a lot of things. Yeah. And presumably she doesn't recognise herself in any of your work. Well, actually, rather she? wonderfully, when I did Madame Arcadena in The Seagull for Peter Stein at the um, Edinburgh Festival, she came, and Arcadena is the most selfish woman in the world, as you know, mm. and somebody came into my dressing room, my mother was there, and said, did you recognise yourself at all in the, in the part? My mother said, I'm much more selfish. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm lucky to be still standing. <laughs> Quite. Now, of course, you were a graduate in philosophy and I was at uh, Cork, and I was wondering if... Do you retain your interest in philosophy? Do you read philosophical <laughs> works, and does it inform your <laughs> acting? Uh, philosophy itself doesn't inform my acting. Mm. I think I'm very dyslexic. I, I didn't, that wasn't called that when I was at university. It was just called really bad at spelling. <laughs> and uh, oddly, last night, my professor of philosophy came, and he's written a fantastic book about two 17th century female philosophers, and he has sent me a draft of it, and I am reading that because mm. I'm, I'm fascinated. I think there may be a theatrical something in it. But uh, no, I don't read philosophy. But what it did do, philosophy, is it makes you take very difficult texts, small texts, and unpick them. And I think that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, because when I went to RADA, I was able to really not analyse text, because analysis is not what really we do, but to really understand why that word does that with that word, does that with that word. And I think that's the only benefit I've had from philosophy. Mm. Now, I've, I've been busy giving you casting suggestions all afternoon, Fiona. Start with or without. <laughs> A resident. Any, anything particular that you got your eye on? Um, no, you know, it doesn't quite work like that. No. Um, you know, there are some regrets. There are some regrets. I was sorry not to play Viola. I think, um, oh, God, I think Viola's line, you know, what should I do? My, my, my brother here, mm. he is in Elysium. I think the beauty in that, I was very sorry I didn't do that, but I had played Rosalind, so I didn't feel I could play Viola. I think in the end, your Violas are in your Rosalinds, or your Rosalinds in your Viola. People wanted me to play Hamlet, and I thought my Richard II was my Hamlet. You can't be playing lots of boys all over the place. Nobody wants to listen or watch, and I don't blame them. Um, so you often subsume one character in another, mm -hmm. and you have to be honest about that. You can't say, you know, we, we have as many parts as we can, but in the end, 
you know, I, I, I think you look in the mirror and it is you somewhere. But I'm about to do a huge challenge, actually, and I think it is the biggest challenge I've ever had, and I'm dreading it. And I'm going to play... Colm Tobin has written a novel called Testament, which is the testament of the Virgin Mary. And she gives her version of what happened on those three terrible days and before. Um, and I'm going to perform the Virgin Mary. <laughs> oh. Um, <laughs> and that's going to open, which is just the nightmare of it, on Broadway in uh, March. And I think that is going to be the biggest challenge I've ever done. I, I'm absolutely terrified about that. So it's coming up. Because I must ask you about your <coughs> relationship, your interest in poetry, which I think mm. uh, you're deeply versed in, pun unintended. Now, I remember seeing you on television talking very illuminatingly about The Wasteland, which obviously is a, a poem you know extremely well. I mean, it was almost as if, uh, could you have been a, a teacher of literature, a, a teacher of philosophy? I mean, you, it, it no, was a marvelous... No, suggesting other careers for me. <laughs> I mean... It was, it was such a marvellous... You made that time. poem clear and lucid, and everything fell into place. About I could it. have been a teacher. Oh, yes, I could have. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you're doing some poetry tonight. Oh, yeah. um, are you... Does your poetic... So do you write poetry? No, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, I write, you know... <laughs> I write dreadful poetry. Um, I do write dreadful poetry, and I never look at it again. I open it up and I go, God. Um, no, I, I admire poetry because poetry has a great conflagration of ideas and sound and meaning, and it all, you know, I do think, as I, I've just done this big poetry project for the tenth project yes, exactly, that we did. Exactly. And so I had to go around gathering a lot of mm. poems, but I kept saying to the audiences this thing that I was once in bed in a flat in West Hampstead. I remember it was West Hampstead. I suppose I was staying the night somewhere, you know, after a night of reverie. Anyway, I remember hearing in the street in the middle of the night a man and a woman outside. I couldn't hear the man's voice. I could just hear, hear, hear the woman. And she was saying, Mike, unlock the bike. Mike, unlock the bike, Mike. And he was going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mike, unlock the bike. Mike, Mike, unlock the bike. And I thought, this is the ultimate poem. <laughs> Their entire relationship was in those phrases and in the rhyme of it. Clearly, he wouldn't unlock the bike. <laughs> Probably in more ways than one. <laughs> she wanted to go, didn't she? And he just wouldn't let her. Mm -hmm. I just thought, you know, very often, it's amazing how poems sit in the middle of our lives. Yes. So I'm very excited about when you fall into a poem. Mm. And also, drama is at its best is poetry, and poetry is drama, which is why we did The Wasteland, because if you perform... I mean, I say this grandly now, having done it. We didn't know this was going to work, but we tried to take a non-theatrical text and put it in a non-theatre mm. space, so that's why we started playing with what would be a new theatre. Don't pick it in theatre and don't put it in a theatre and see what happens. And in fact, of course, the audience make the theatre. So it's very interesting what you don't need to have. You don't need to have characters, you don't need to have lighting, you don't need to have seating that looks like this. You don't need lots of things mm. to make theatre, and it's just a way of refining it. But... You know, just even beginning, April is the cruelest month. People would just lock on, and they would follow that movie, which is what it's like, the wasteland. It's fantastic. You know, the chair she sat in, like a burnished throne. People just would follow it, and then suddenly it would be over. And it was the most really delightful thing to do. But I am about to do another poem. Yeah, which is? I'm going to do The Ancient Mariner. I learnt it 
last year running. I used to go running every day and just go, <laughs> and I've learned the whole thing. And then this summer, I was at a loose end because Hollywood was reluctant to make a phone call in my direction. And I began to, I asked Phila Deloitte, could I perform it in her kitchen? And she's got a big kitchen. And um, um, she has got a big kitchen. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, so she's a big kitchen. Um, and she said, yeah, why don't we do that? And so I began to rehearse with her every day, the, the Angel Mariner. And, you know, when you start an idea, is it Goethe who says, just if you want, if there's any genius, it's in doing. Just start something and the rest will occur. I honestly was going to do it in her kitchen. Next thing somebody said, would you like to do it in Epidavros in Greece? We said, yes, I think so. <laughs> Next thing, Jean Calman, you know, who I've worked with a lot, he said, I love Greece. Could I come and light your show? We think, come and light our show. Nobody was getting paid. Nothing was paid. We said, all right, sure, we'll come and light it. And then um, my friend Mel Mercy said, I'd love to do sound on that. I said, come to Greece. So the Greeks paid, God knows how, for us to put us up. <laughs> so that's where it's all gone. No, no, the bailout. No, no, they didn't pay. We just, they paid for us to stay in a hotel. Right. We stayed in this lovely hotel, which we had played Happy Days in, in this beautiful hotel called the Hotel Moria. If ever you are anywhere in Epidavros, it's a family hotel. We all stayed there. And we played in the mini Epidavros. We rehearsed it and we performed The Ancient Mariner in August for two nights only. It was absolute bliss. And then we all went in a catamaran for our holidays for five days heaven. So that was that. Mm -hmm. So coming back to London, our, my lovely friend and producer, Claire Bejanin, uh, has got uh, the young Vic and the old Vic to agree that we're going to do it in the tunnels for just two weeks, uh, in the first two weeks of January. Right. So I'm going to perform it, but not just perform it, I mean, I'm going to perform it, but with a dancer called Daniel Hey, Gordon, who's just amazing dancer, he dances it and I speak it. It's, I'm not advertising, but it's a delightful thing anyway. And it's short. <laughs> So that's my other next poetry thing. Well, I think you've just sold out the entire run, I, hope so. I think. <laughs> Finally, do you keep a journal or keep a diary of your doings at all? Today, I'll say <laughs> I should be a teacher, not an actor. Um, no, I don't. I mean, sometimes I have to write something. I have a terrible thing coming up on Saturday is the Art Angel Dinner, where they have all these artists for dinner, and I've been asked to give the speech, and I haven't written a word. Mm -hmm. So if anybody has an idea... <laughs> well, uh, oh, no, ages, when I'm yeah. asked to write something, I sit down and a bit like a sort of A-level student. I panic, mm. I sweat, and then I write it. So that's the only... Right. Uh, so we can't look forward to your published diaries in a few years' time then, or can we? Oh, she smiled enigmatically. Yes. <laughs> I do keep my diaries. I've just moved house. And I found all my diaries from 1982, just desk diaries. Mm -hmm. And of course, you only have to open a page of a desk diary and go, oh, I remember that day. So it's all in there. I think it's in my desk. Mm -hmm. I do write. I used to write diaries sometimes, but I can't read my writing now. But I, I, so I do have to do chunks of writing. Yeah, mm. maybe one day I'll write something. Well, let's hope so. And good luck with the speech on Saturday. Fiona, thank you so much for so generously you for sharing yourself with us well, this afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, Fiona Shaw.